welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Creative Piecemeal, a creative arts podcast. I'm your host, board-certified music therapist, Tami Takaishi. Each show features a different artist from the field of fine and creative arts, and I'm delighted to bring American violinist Tracy Silverman to the show today. Tracy Silverman is a musical force. He made his debut with the Chicago Symphony at age 13 and kept pursuing his dreams. He was a founding member of the Turtle Island String Quartet and has since released dozens of records and gone on to compose and tour extensively. Currently, he serves on the faculty at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Tracy, welcome to Creative Piecemeal. I am so excited to reconnect with you and have you on the show. Likewise, Tammy. It's great to see you. Thank you. We're going to get started um, with what inspired you to get into music and pick up the violin. Ah, the big questions. Well, you know, I think I was so young that I, I, I barely remember. Um, it seemed like I've always been a musician. You know, it was never really a choice. It was just sort of something that I always did. And it sort of was just seemed obvious that that's what I was going to do, you know. <laughs> but I do remember uh, as a very young kid being really uh, just affected by music. And I, I think this is, you know, obviously my parents noticed that and nurtured that. And, and I have to say, I, I am, you know, extremely lucky. I'm very grateful uh, that my parents were so supportive and, and uh, aware of, of this. But I, you know, must acknowledge my privilege and the uh, advantages that I had with, with parents who saw that but could do something about it could you know both my parents were teachers we didn't have a lot of money but we had enough for violin lessons from the guy who lived down the street and you know stuff like that and my parents were so supportive that they would drive me hours to uh to the best teachers that they could find and devoted a lot of their time and energy and money to giving me the best musical education that i could get uh from the time i was quite young they always sought out the best teachers. And, and by the time I was eight, I was already at Juilliard pre-college because they thought that was the best, you know, we were about an hour away from the city in New York at that point. And then a couple of years later, when I was 10, we moved to uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, where my dad got a job at the college and there wasn't a great teacher in Beloit. So we would drive two hours every Saturday to Chicago, to uh, Chicago Musical College, where I studied with Morris Gomberg and then uh, Deborah Wood, who uh, was later Deborah Schwartz, who are just the most remarkable, amazing teachers and where I really learned uh, almost everything that I know about string playing. But that was at the age of, you know, 10 through 15. And my dad would make this two hour trip there, sit for an hour at the lesson where he was deputized by my teacher to 
while I was home to, you know, watch how I was practicing because he sat there and knew everything that he learned. He was learning everything that I was learning, you know, and uh, and then drove two hours back home. And we did that for years and years. So very grateful for all that. But I'll tell you what happened when I was about four years old and how I think that they started to discover that this was, you know, kind of what I was interested in. I was on my trike and riding down my, we had a, lived on this little block and and down at the end of uh, my street, there was a, uh, a young man, Ronald Carbone, who is still around and is still a working musician in, in the New York area. Uh, and he lived down at the end of the street. He was probably, I don't know, in his early 20s at that point. And he was a very good violinist. Uh, and he, I think he was a concert master in an, in an orchestra, and, uh, you know, like a local orchestra. And I heard this, this music. I was pedaled down a little further than I was supposed to go because he was down at the end of the block and I was only four, but there was no traffic back then. And I'm pedaling down there and I hear this wonderful music coming from this house. And it sounded like, <laughs> it's early in the morning. I can't sing a thing. <laughs> you know, the Scheherazade <clears throat> melody. I could play it on violin. <laughs> I can't sing it 10 a.m. And, uh, and so I was just like, what, who is this lady singing? I just thought it was the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. And I quick turned around on my trike and I rode home as fast as I could. And I got my older brother, who's two years older than me, Brian. And, uh, you know, he knew everything. So I said, Brian, you got to check this out. There's some lady down at the end of our street who's singing. I didn't do that. I went, and he said, what are you talking about? There's no lady down there. So he gets on his bike and we drive ride down there. And sure enough, there it is, this beautiful sound. And he turns to me and he says, wow, you don't know much about music, do you? He goes, that's not a lady singing. That's somebody playing the flute. So, so that night I'm telling my parents, I'm like, I heard this amazing flute player down at the end of the street. And it was like, oh, I want to be able to play the flute. I want to do that. You know, and they're like, what are you talking about? They figured it out and they started giving me violin lessons with Ronnie Carbone. And, and that's how I started. And, you know, I remember around that same time listening to um, my dad had classical records. He had a hi-fi system back in the 60s. This is, this is around 1964, 65. You know, he had a, a hi-fi set and had some LPs and uh, had a recording of the Sibelius Violin Concerto. And, uh, and somehow I found it, heard him playing it or whatever. And just fell in love. I mean, I had never heard, you know, that passage where it goes up to the sixth, the famous, you know, and it just tears your heart out to this day. It brings tears to my eyes. Well, it brought tears to my eyes as a little four or five year old kid. It was like an emotional wallop that I just, you know, it was like, you know, musical heroin in my veins, you know, and I didn't know how to react. And I would just like cry. And my parents saw this and like, wow, you know, <laughs> this, you know, this is making an impact. And I just fell in love with, with the violin music, the Prokofiev violin concertos. I played the Milstein recording of that till I swear the, you know, grooves must've gotten so worn. You could see through the record. I, I used to listen to it every night, fell in love with that music. And so that was my beginning. You know, I, I really, um, 
I really fell in love with classical music, but my dad also played a lot of jazz, so I was brought up listening to a lot of that. My mom was a big musical theater fan, so we had that, and I had an older brother, so by the time I was in my early teens, he was listening to a lot of rock and roll. He was turning me on to Hendrix and Zappa and Jean-Luc Ponty, who I'd never heard of before. He's like, for my 16th birthday, my brother bought me um, a birthday present that was possibly the most uh, influential thing that ever happened in my musical life. He got me three records. Jimi Hendrix, Cry of Love, Frank Zappa, Hot Rats, and uh, Jean-Luc Ponty, Enigmatic Ocean. And that just kind of, he said, because I've been playing classical music for years at this point, he said, you need to listen to this. And it really changed my my outlook. Uh, and I and I had been listening to a lot of rock and roll anyway, but I really studied these records, and uh, uh, and it changed. It really changed my direction. I can imagine, and it sounds like your whole family. Everyone's got such broad and wonderful musical tastes, and and you're, you know, willing to just give anything a try, give anything a listen, and let that music affect you. And that, that is a wonderful origin story of how you came to be Tracy Silverman, the <laughs> violinist. It, it's so it's basically like fate then you and the violin. I guess, you know, or just the, the first thing I came across, you know, <laughs> but yeah, there's it's so, just more emotional to me than, than piano, I guess, you know, it just had more of that, uh, you know, had more soul. And, and what I realized as I went through my musical life, I, you know, in retrospect, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I look back and I see that all of the things that I was gravita- that I gravitated towards, all the kinds of music that I was loving as a kid, all had uh, a common thread, and that's they were all incredibly soulful. It was all stuff that was very emotional. Aretha, I mean, I, I just at some you know at one point, and, and Ray Charles, I just could not get enough. You know, I, there was something about that cry in the voice, and I think you know maybe I somehow I always have thought that part of my Jewish heritage, you know, has a sort of the cantorial, you know, that cry in the voice that you hear a lot in in a, a, a lot of uh, you know cultural music from Eastern Europe and. Um, and I, I, and I don't know if that's, you know, part of that sort of cultural thing that I heard from grandparents and parents and, but I was always attracted to music that was, uh, really packed an emotional wallop. And, and that's what I gravitate towards when I compose and, uh, play, you know. Understandable. Yeah. Music is so powerful and there's just certain artists and composers that, you know, people get really drawn to, you know, so it definitely sounds like, you know, violin is the right choice for you. But if you ever had to pick another instrument to play, what do you think it would be? Uh, probably piano, actually. Um, I, you know, didn't mean to like slag piano, but the the one regret of the regrets that I have in life is uh, my, perhaps my biggest musical regret is that I didn't really learn piano well enough. I took piano lessons a little bit as a minor in college. You know, you had to have some piano, but I was never fluent. I could never read, sit down and play the piano the way I wanted to. And um, now I play, you know, I can play a little bit of jazz and rock and stuff like that, but I just don't have it in my fingers the way I do with the violin. And, and I wish I did because as, as a composer, there's n- no instrument really more useful than the piano. 
It is definitely very versatile in composing. Can you tell me a little bit more about your current composition projects and I guess where you find your inspiration for those? Yeah, well, I usually have like a list of projects that, you know, are on my whiteboard over here that uh, um, that I haven't gotten to yet. So it's not so much a matter of, of inspiration, I think, as, as much of just uh, trying to get get to the things that I want to do. It's sort of like, a, you know, a, a laundry list or a shopping list of stuff that I'm hoping to buy a wish list. You know, that's what it that's what it is. And uh, and I just try to get to them one at a time. And, you know, as a professional, there's always a lot of other considerations that that go into what projects you're going to do next. And often they're most projects are collaborative in some way. So it's a matter of who who do I want to work with, who is available right now for me to, to, to do these projects. So there's all kinds of uh, logistics um, and business considerations that go in that are involved in, in what projects get done and what's next. But from a more creative standpoint, which is, I think, what you're asking, the inspiration, you know, uh, one of the last big projects that I did was uh, my third electric violin concerto, which is called Love Song to the Sun. And all of these concertos, although they've been commissioned and, you know, was paid to write them, which I'm extremely grateful for, but they're all, even still, they're all labors of love, you know, <laughs> you know, because you, the amount of time that goes into writing a, a, symphon a large symphonic work, this was a, uh, you know, about a 40 minute symphonic, you know, piece. Uh, it's, you know, a couple of years of, of a lot of work. And the inspiration behind that is a good question. I think for me, it has a lot to do with the idea of leaving a trying to create a place for the electric violin in our musical landscape and it's something that i think about quite consciously it's it's what i do but uh, and what i've been doing for a long time i've been playing electric violin since the 1980s uh six string electric violins and it's i've you know, pretty much made some of the very first instruments and was one of the very first people, me and Mark Wood, who um, uh, was kind of got me started on this in 1981. And we were building a lot of the first instruments together, but nobody was playing it. And, and besides us, and while we wanted to be at that point in the 80s, our both of us, uh, our goals, our stated, clearly stated goals were to become rock stars. You know, we just wanted to be the first electric rock and roll, you know, violinist who we were both going to be the Jimi Hendrix of the electric violin. You know, that's what that, our goal was to try to get and not just for ourselves. You got to understand this was a more of a a movement that we were spearheading. Uh, and I and I still am uh, an evangelist for this movement. And that is to try to get kids to play air violin instead of air guitar when they're listening to, to music that they love. And to, right, and to make a violin, in other words, to make the violin, the electric violin, a real, usable, uh, functioning instrument in rock and roll. Because back then, it was rock and roll. Now, of course, it's hip hop and all kinds of other stuff. But back in the 70s, 80s, rock reigned supreme, except unless you were on the disco, you know, train. You were sort of one or the other back in that day. But 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 it was a lot of rock and roll. And so, you know, what we really wanted to do is to do what had happened with the guitar. 
which was it got electrified. Guitar had been around for centuries, but once it became uh, so a more of a, a, a folk instrument, a rock instrument, acoustically and of course electrically, with people like Hendrix and Clapton, everybody putting it on the map, we just we knew that that had to happen with violin, and we wanted to be there making those instruments, designing them, and playing them, and creating a new future for string players, where their options were not just to play the beautiful classical music that I loved, Sibelius and Prokofiev and things like that. But as much as I loved that, I knew that th there was something unsustainable about that. It was anachronistic. It was in a state of arrested development where string playing was taught the same way for the previous hundred years since the early 20th century uh, as it had you know, been taught um, the Russian school of string playing, Josef Joachim and Leopold Auer and all of the that whole thing that I, I was a direct descendant of. My teacher in Chicago studied with Leopold Auer, you know, and um, that was the way violin was taught. But it was not making the violin a useful 21st century or at that point, 20th century instrument in our popular musical culture. And that's what I was trying to change and still am. And I think I think you're doing a great job with that. I mean, in my experience of knowing you and seeing how well you work with young students and, and their eyes just light up, seeing that you can play all those cool and hip rock and roll songs on the violin. They're like, wow, you know, and, and, and it's just fascinating. Even as a classically trained musician and violinist, it's amazing to see what you can do when you electrify something and you add its strings and you add pedals and and the expanse that you can take it to and you know i'm definitely excited when does that uh, next concerto come out if you've been feeling burned out stressed overwhelmed or exhausted the resources and courses at the self-care institute are here to support you the Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. Well, that concerto, the third one that I'm talking about, actually came out in 17, and 20, uh, a few years ago. And uh, we premiered it with four orchestras. Uh, it was never recorded properly. Um, so I don't have a great version of it that I can show the world, which is breaking my heart. Because uh, that's, you know, if I had a wish list, that would be the top of it, would to be able to get, get the thing recorded. My second electric violin concerto which was played with several orchestras. I also don't have an orchestral recording of it. You have to understand, for, for your audience, needs to understand that to record an orchestra is a big deal because not only, um, you know, the, the production of recording it, but you have to pay an orchestra to record. So it involves somebody really investing a lot of money in a, in a recording to do that. So it's not something that I can undertake myself. What I did in my second concerto was I created a reduction of it for string quartet. And I had and I hired the 
Calder string quartet was a, a wonderful new music uh, ensemble out of California. I hired them and had them play on my recording. So I have a sort of version of that piece, but it's not the orchestral version. It's a string quartet and electric violin. Still having the reduction with a string quartet sounds very interesting. And it sounds like it would bring a whole different life to a piece that you already fell in love with and composed for full orchestra. Exactly. Well, it was the only way that I could make that music available to anybody, you know, as artists, as creative artists, our sort of directive, it's kind of like our life force, our, uh, the thing that motivates us is getting our music into to people's ears. You know, we want people to hear what we've done. We have a point of view, we have a view of the world that we're trying to share. You know, it's like the music of every period in history from Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, through, throughout history, all of those composers are giving us a little a relic, a, 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 a sample of what life was like what the musical life was like in that moment. It's a snapshot of what Vienna was like in 1788, let's say, for, for Mozart or something. And they're giving us this um, document from the past. And because music has this incredible ability to speak beyond politics, to speak beyond logic even, and, and current events and, uh, and speak directly to our emotions and just tell us what it feels like to live in this moment, you know, uh, in a way that almost no other art form can, you know, painting can show us a photographer, photography can certainly show us a very realistic picture of, of what life was like, but music can make us feel in a way that's immediate, direct, visceral to the gut. And, um, and so I think it's very important for every period in history to have composers who are documenting what it feels like to live in this moment. What does it feel like to live in the United States in 2020 musically, you know, as an electric violinist, you know, or whatever. Uh, and these are, at least to us who create these things, you know, we're, the reason we're creating them is because it's important for us to share this with people and to go, hey, this is the way I hear it. This is the way I see it. Listen, you know, listen to this is what we're saying, you know, and if nobody's listening, it's, it's kind of disappointing. What does living a creative life mean to you? And what is creativity to you? The big question, creativity. You know, I, I guess most uh, in terms of creativity, you know, people think of that as sort of self-expression. Certainly it is. I think it's also important to uh, you know, you can express yourself in a way that a million other people have expressed themselves in exactly the same way in a sort of generic, sort of cliche way, um, because those, you know, cliches are cliches because everybody feels them and they're, and they're real, but because they're overused, they become cliches. So while creativity uh, is self-expression, I like to think that it, to really be creative, you have to have a unique point of view. There has to be something about your vision of the world that is distinctly yours. So that's one the first thing. And I, and I think that's takes some knowing of yourself to know what is your perspective of the world. You know, Picasso has a way that he paints. That's his way of seeing the world, you know, this crazy whatever. That's his vision of the world is different from Monet's. So I think musicians, you know, we all have to have our way of hearing the world. But the actual creative process, when you get right down to it, you know, like um, people have asked me, you know, you've written 
like a symphonic works. How do you start something like that? How do you complete something like that? You know, what is that process? And the the thing that um that it seems like to me, what is boiled down to somebody once explained to me that the word decision to decide is to cut away, like an incision is to cut in, and a decision is to cut away. And what you're doing when you make a decision is you're eliminating other choices. You're eliminating other possibilities. So in writing a huge piece, what I was telling uh, the uh, students is that what you need to do is just start making tough choices. You need to make a decision. Okay, the piece is going to be this long. It's going to have this instrumentation. It's going to be about this, at least you have something in your mind. I want it to be three movements. I want it to be nonstop, no breaks. You know, you start making choices like that, and then you start saying, okay, three movements. I want it to be fast, slow, fast, or whatever. That's a choice. Okay, now I've got this. I want it to have a strong melodic uh, motif, or I don't. I want it to be atonal. Those are all choices. And as each time you start making a choice, you're moving down a creative pathway in which other options are, you're starting with this huge world of infinite possibilities. And as you start going, you start making these choices and your next choice becomes clearer and clearer because there are fewer and fewer options. You're just sort of refining these choices until you end up focusing on exactly what it is that you're creating. And so that creative process, you know, uh, rather than being overwhelmed by that blank canvas in front of you or the blank screen in front of your, you know, on your computer, just start making choices one by one and until it's done. A lot of people have been working from home or finding other passion projects to do while working from home in 2020. Has the current situation given you time to delve into other projects or, you know, change your creative process or seen things in another light? Well, it's certainly given me more time, um, which to be honest, I'm incredibly grateful for because at my, uh, my advanced uh, point in my career, <laughs> uh, I'm 60 years old this year and it's time is, is the most precious thing that anybody can give me. You know, money is nice, but uh, you can always find a way to make money. You can't make time, <laughs> no matter what you do. And uh, it just, um, you can only spend it. And uh, <laughs> so this was kind of a gift of time that I've been trying to put to good use and just hold up in my studio here. It's a very lovely place. I'm grateful to have it. And I've just, you know, got barely enough gear to, to do what I need to do. I got Pro Tools. I got a decent, you know, laptop. and get my work done. And it has what I've been focusing on uh, for this whole pretty much since the pandemic started uh, since about April is an educational project. I've been taking my uh, I have this book, I don't mean to plug it, but I've got this book uh, that I wrote called Stromboing. And and it's kind of something I've been teaching for years. And, it, and it's part of this whole uh, mission statement that I've been talking about of trying to bring string playing into the 21st century. And and I realized about 20 years ago that there are a, f a few elements of string playing that are key to, to advancing us into an actually 
connecting us to our current music. And I talk about this a lot these days, that what our current music is, you know, rock and roll, hip hop, jazz, film scores, video music, TV, all this, all the sounds, all the music that is currently being produced in our culture and essentially pop music, right? And connecting strings to that in a meaningful way, I think the, the real key to that is not treating us the way we've normally uh, been treated, which is as a melodic instrument. Because the association with classical music is so strong and so deep. As soon as you hear a violin playing something, immediately there's an association with European classical music from the 19th century, essentially, 18th, 19th century. It's really hard to get around that unless you're fiddling and playing fiddly music, you know, bluegrass, folk. So there's that and there's classical, but there's no representation in, in our real current pop music, the way guitars used to be in rock and roll, not so much in hip hop, but they're there a little bit keyboards, electronics, drums, beats, all of the kind of stuff that makes up the sound of today, strings have no part in that. And how do we get them in there? And my my gut feeling was that the most important thing was teaching strings how to groove, how to play rhythm, and to start playing string, uh, strings not as melodic instruments, but as rhythm instruments, playing, basically treating them as chordal instruments, which they aren't really unless you put six strings on them and then they get a little bit easier to be treated as chordal instruments because you have actual working bass notes like a guitar can really kind of play bass notes for a singer for instance if you're accompanying a singer songwriter something you play guitar and you sing it sounds complete you have a rhythm instrument that is holding down the bass is filling in all the harmony is giving you rhythm all in one package right one strumming package on a guitar and Nobody does that on stringed instruments, but it's completely possible. It just hasn't been done. People don't, that's not the tradition. So I'm trying to change that tradition by teaching people how to play chords on, on strings and how to strum with their bow in a way that is effective because string players are not taught that way. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I'm gonna grab my fiddle here. Hang on one second. So if, if I were gonna say, to, uh, and I do this all the time, to a class of string players. Okay, play this riff. It goes like this. Right? Everybody sing it. I got them singing first. Okay, now play it. And they play it like this, like any string player would play it. Right? But if you ask a guitar player to play that, you will never ever in your life see a guitar player pick up a guitar and go right it looks goofy that's not how you play the guitar you play the guitar like this right i'm strumming with my hand my hand is going back and forth the same way all the time instead of going ba da 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 and just playing the accents my hand is playing da 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 everything and i'm muting what i don't want to hear simple as that every guitar player can do this in their second lesson right it's the easiest thing in the world so but it's not hard like I always say, if guitar players can do it, how hard could it be? 
<laughs> but it's just not the way we're taught. We're not taught to do that because we're not taught how to mute those strings. We're always taught how to make beautiful sounds. We're never taught how to not make sounds, right? So in order to do that, you have to know how to get those muted sounds. And we can do that on a violin. You can mute them like that. So that's how you can do that and keep time and actually groove because that's way groovier if I go it's going to groove better than right because of all those little notes and then you go from this middle of the bow to the bottom where you're going And, you know, we involved this vertical thing, which also was never taught to me at Juilliard. So it's it's not that this is impossible. It's not that it's even really hard. Uh, it's just different. And it's not the tradition. It's not the way strings are taught. So I'm on a mission to change the way strings are taught, to change the pedagogy of this. And, and I believe that if you start with the kids, you can change the future. It's going to be... It, you can help professionals who are, you know, classical string players to try to lose that classical accent and, and learn how to groove. It's possible, but um, we're going to change the future by changing kids. So I've been, you know, really focusing on trying to get these ideas into the hands of young players, getting in, into the hands of teachers who are teaching in classroom schools, you know, string orchestras in public schools. To start, I have a, a whole, you know, series of orchestra pieces, groove studies that are etudes to teach kids how to do these things, how to ghost, how to keep strumming and things like that. So that's what I've been uh, spending my time on uh, since the pandemic is a video course, an online video course where I'm teaching this book and I've uh, started writing a second book called The Rhythm String Player. And I have the whole online course for that already shot and edited and coming out in about a week or two. Uh, uh, this is November we're talking now, but um, this will air, I guess, in January, February, whatever. So hopefully it will be out. It's on Teachable. And so that's what I've been doing. It's a lot, a lot of work. Uh, I, I put together the two flagship courses for this are 30-day challenges each. So there's 30 lessons for each course, short little bite-sized lessons. And the idea is you, you know, what I'm trying to do is to make this so that people can just do this as a warm-up or as a little fun sort of encore at the end of their practice day, do a little 10-minute groove stuff work and um, incorporate it into your daily practice routine. So I've got these 30 short lessons, but... Um, they're very tightly edited and there's lots of graphics on screen and all that kind of stuff. So it's, I'm doing it all myself. So it's taking forever. <laughs> that sounds like quite the undertaking, but very exciting. Yeah. And especially for young players, you know, if they're stuck at home and they're missing their having, being able to play with friends and in their school orchestras and they're looking for ways to expand. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, we'll see. You know, um, I'm trying to make it, you know, the flagship version and then sort of a condensed smaller version that will be cheaper and more accessible and things like that. So trying to make it available to everybody on different levels who, who are interested in this. Um, that's that's my goal. That's, that's what I see as my mission in life at this point. Who knows when I'm going to be able to get back on the road and play concerts, you know, I, 
it sounds like um, composing and doing the educational piece is something that's really interesting you right now in your main focus. Do you see that in the months coming forward as being more of what you end up doing just because of the situation we're all in? Well, who knows, you know, when the classical music world is going to really start gearing back up. The orchestral world is going to be one up among the last parts of that to probably really get going. So I'm not, to, I'm a complete optimist by nature. I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I wasn't, but I am also a realist and, and I, and I'm afraid that my place in the classical world may be tenuous just because the cloud, you know, the, a lot of what I what I do professionally is play with orchestras as a soloist, playing this John Adams concerto, the Dharma at Big Sur. You see my poster back here. Um, Terry Riley, great American composer, wrote a concerto uh, for me that we premiered with the Nashville Symphony. We recorded with um, Naxos Records and played it in Carnegie Hall. And um, you know, so that's kind of. What I'm probably best known for are, are some of these premieres of electric violin concertos that I've gotten commissioned. And again, that's part of my mission to get this instrument out into the world. And I think that's going to be a tough, uh, a tough road to, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before I'm, I'm, I'm going to get hired again, frankly. I have a concert coming up in June with the Milwaukee Symphony playing Dharma, but orchestras are, are very, very cautious right now the ones that are going to make it through this at all. And what I do is very interesting to me, but it's definitely on the fringes of the classical world and not the first thing that gets booked, you know, so. Yeah. Speaking from, you know, experience of, you know, seeing you perform and seeing your work and hearing your work, I definitely think there's a place for new music and electric violin it's just i think we're we all as artists have to i guess we're forced to get a little more out of the box when it comes to pursuing our dreams especially now that 2020 has happened getting more creative with how we connect with audiences and and how we promote and how we help people connect with music and find music um but it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job i was wondering who were your role models growing up since obviously you are a role model to many in terms of electric violin and and new and contemporary music you know you didn't have that as much in your growing up and i'm wondering who you looked up to as a musician it's a good question because you know i like to uh, tell people i i went to juilliard hoping to be the next Yasha Heifetz, and I left hoping to be the next Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> so um, somewhere in there, my role models shifted <laughs> to, to my parents' dismay. But, you know, I, I guess my role models when I was younger were guitar heroes, you know, after I initially it was Milstein and Oistrock and Heifetz. Uh, and then what happened? And you may, you know, you or your audience may be wondering, well, what, where, how did the shift happen? And, you know, like I was saying, part of it, you know, um, even at that age, I realized that, you know, we wanted the violin needed to be advanced. And so I started really pursuing this electric violin as a corollary to the electric guitar. But the reason I was doing that is because all my friends like were listening to guitar players and I just wanted to play music that they would get, that they would like, that they would think was cool because they didn't know what a Sibelius violin concerto was. You know, what the heck is that? Um, 
you know, and even though they probably would have loved it, it would have sounded, it would have been hard, a hard pitch because it's like in a different language, you know, it's sort of like, I mean, it's not as far as like a Shakespearean English, but it, Shakespeare, they're great plays. And you, if you modernize them, you know, um, anybody can understand them. But if you don't, a lot of people are confused by the language and, and, that's kind of what classical music is to a lot of young people. It's not that they can't enjoy it. It's just, it sounds very old fashioned. So I wanted to speak in my language, the language that my friends speak in rock and roll. I wanted to play music that they would think rocked. Uh, so I started plugging into amps and, you know, and discovered that when you crank up an electric violin with distortion through a Marshall amp, it kind of levels the playing field, you know, suddenly everybody goes, oh, this is super cool. And in fact, it blows people's minds because they just don't expect that out of a violin. So you get that shock factor <laughs> as well. You know, you get the surprise factor. But um, so my role models were, you know, I was trying to be the next Jimi Hendrix, you know, but I was also, I mean, who I was influenced by musically was kind of a lot deeper and more complex than that. I was listening to a lot of John Coltrane back then um, when I was at Juilliard. Uh, I had jazz friends uh, who really turned me on to Coltrane. I was transcribing giant steps and trying to play it on violin. And just there's something about Coltrane's sound, again, that just, it just affected me in a, in a way that, you know, was totally visceral. It just, it just was, you know, I would just listen to it. And there was something amazingly what's the word um spiritual about what he was doing there was something important about it and uh same thing with miles davis man you know he could just the the tune blue and green i spent months trying to imitate every nuance of of the of his sound till i could imitate it and people could go oh wow you know and it sounds like miles you know no vibrato like a tonguing accent with my bow you know just try every little detail of it and so i had a lot of role models you know um at the same time still a huge Prokofiev fan and in my writing i'm like everything's naturally tend to veer towards Prokofiev. i gotta be careful you know so all of those kind of influences um musical influences uh jumping around in my head and, and i don't know if that's what you mean by role models um influences um you know stuff like that uh, i read a book i remember uh, about bob marley uh right around the time i was uh just got out of, out of juilliard and i was trying to figure out what to do with with the violin with the electric violin and you know his political um message that he was trying to like carry his people to freedom and you know something about that resonated with me i was like i'm gonna do that for the violin i'm gonna be you know <laughs> you know i want to i wanted to be like that i wanted to be somebody who was carrying a banner for for his cause and uh you know like uh <laughs> my my friend uh, mark wood who who we started making electric violin used to call me rebel with that uh, rebel without a brain <laughs> <laughs> uh, just because I wanted, you know, I was so like that. I, I wanted to carry this banner and he was like, you know, it was almost became a joke at one point, but that was kind of a role model for me also. It was not just the musical thing, but the sense of activism. 
the sense of sort of social activism that somebody's got to do this and you know it might as well be me you've definitely got a lot of passion for music for electric violin for changing the landscape of violin to be more versatile which is fantastic and and just wonderful um speaking as a violinist i think it really makes it more colorful in music and I can't wait to see what else happens in the future, especially as young violinists come up in the world. I was wondering uh, what's one of the best compliments you've ever received? The best thing to me is always when a young person gets it and they sort of are grateful for what I, you know, my help in that. That's the most rewarding thing for me, because really what's important, again, in this sort of mission in my life is this idea that young people are going to take, you know, the baton that I'm trying to pass and run with it further than I ever could. So, for instance, I really want violin, electric violin, electric six string violin, by the way, which I really think is a significantly important instrument in the because it can be used as a rhythm instrument um it's funk it's can function differently so it's really a kind of a, a different animal and i'm hoping that there will be young people in the hip-hop community in the the real grassroots people who are making music uh in their bedrooms and young producers going from that level up to the producers who are making hit records and who are producing big um, rappers and, and big singers and pop singers, that they will discover the violin, this electric violin, and use it in an authentic way in their music, in a way that I never could, because it's impossible for me to, to change my background, my upbringing, full of classical music, full of all of this stuff, and being a white person of my age and my years that I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I have all a host of influences that uh, I, I'm happy for, but I can't lose. But young people who may have never heard a classical violin, who have never heard the Tchaikovsky Concerto, don't, they know they've heard of Bach and Beethoven, and they know they've heard the names, but they're just not familiar with the repertoire, don't have a preconception of what a violin is supposed to really sound like, may never have heard one in person, and somehow picks up one of these instruments because maybe of something I did or something that a student has done, and maybe this is 10 years from now, and starts to explore in an authentic way, strumming, using this strumming idea that they've seen people do because maybe it's infiltrated down into the younger generation, and starts producing real authentic music on this instrument that I would never be able to do because I'm not part of that culture. And so that's what I'm hoping. That That's my dream, that I will live to see young producers, hip-hop producers, incorporating young, hopefully people of color, playing these instruments and doing authentic, vibrant, contemporary, popular music with them in a way that hasn't happened since, uh, you know, the 18th and 19th century, where violin was an, uh, an important part of the pop music of the day. I think that would be absolutely wonderful. I know there are some indie bands and rock bands who have violinists, or some of my friends are like, play cello and the electric 
by their cello and they play in bands, but, but I haven't seen too much of people just going out, like you said, and, and creating something more, yeah. more authentic as yet. But I definitely have hope that, that as people are, we're definitely on their way, you know, people are expanding and getting more creative way. every yeah. day with music, which, which I've noticed is, is fantastic. And especially nowadays we all, well, we used to all have a little more time to, to our creative pursuits. I was also wondering, um, what is something you wish you had known when you first started I out was in a your field? Very bad networker in the early days, and you know, coming up in the in the eighties, really, my professional life started in the eighties. Uh, there was no internet; internet was twenty years away, really, um, practically, and uh, you know, so it was not easy to do to network, uh, and I just wasn't good at it. And and holy cow, if you know, that would probably would have helped my career if I'd have just somebody told me, you know what, just go hang out and meet people and do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I did plenty. I mean, I, I spent years in the rock clubs and stuff, but it wasn't in the right places at the right times and, you know, stuff like that. So spinning my wheels for a lot of time, my whole 20s, I spent my entire 20s playing in rock bands in New York City, playing in the clubs, getting absolutely nowhere. And holy cow, that's 10 really important years of your life. If I had come out of those years with, you know, I was trying to get a record deal back back then, that was the only way to get anywhere. And I never got one. And, um, you know, if I could have come out of that with a couple of records and, you know, that would have been would have been very helpful to my life. But that didn't happen. I, I refer to those 10 years now as wandering in the desert, <laughs> you know, like musically, because what I was doing was making no money. I was, you know, practically literally starving. But uh, I remember times when I was literally going through the couch cushions to get uh, change to pay the 60 cent toll to get from Yonkers to Manhattan. So days, there were some very, very, uh, you know, thin days back then. Um, anyway. Uh, tell me about a time when you felt most alive or happy with your music, like one of your favorite memories. Favorite memories, you know, um, being in Turtle Island was a wonderful experience. For me, it was my first real professional gig. Um, it's kind of my big break. And we went to Brazil. The first time we went to Brazil, I think it was in 95, 94. I had been a real fan of Brazilian music because uh, my dad was a big jazz fan back in the early days when Bossa Nova first hit in the 60s. And, uh, you know, my dad was way into that. So I grew up listening to a lot of great Brazilian music, João Gilberto, and, and uh, of course, all of the um, Jobim tunes and stuff like that. And so when I got down there, I was just a Brazilophile. I loved the music and any, you know, uh, any chance that I had, I would jam with some of the Brazilian musicians down there, which we had wonderful opportunities to do and got introduced to this uh, kind of music called Choro, which they have down there, Choros and Chorinhos, which are just so much fun. And all these great Brazilian musicians would just like take out a book and put it on the piano and we'd all gather around and we'd play this great music. And um, those are some of my fondest memories, uh, you know, being on the road. That, that was a wonderful time.
before we go, I wanted to mention the recipe that you shared, matzo brai, which sounds amazing. And I, I want to go get the ingredients and, and make it pretty much immediately. I'm like, yes, please. I was wondering if you want to share a little bit about why, why it's so meaningful to you. <laughs> Very simple. Uh, well, matzo brai is, is sort of um, super simple. It's uh, just a pancake made out of um, matzah. And matzah, for those who may not be familiar with it, is um, the Jewish bread of affliction. And it only um, you can only buy it during Passover season, which is around Easter time. And uh, they're just these flat crackers, basically, which is just, they're like saltines. You know, there's just flour and water. There's nothing to them. And uh, is a Jewish recipe to make uh, like a pancake out of them. And all you do is you, you break them up and you soak them a little bit in water and you mix them with uh, with a couple beaten eggs and you fry them and fry it in oil. And it kind of makes a flat pancake. And then you put sugar all over on top of it. And it's just kind of a traditional thing that I grew up with that we ha we would have pretty much every year when we could get matzah and we all loved it um, because it was crispy and, you know, it's greasy, crispy. It's, it's sort of like a funnel cake, <laughs> Jewish funnel cake, you know, zero nutritional value uh, and 100% fun and uh, deliciousness. So uh, I started making them for my kids, you know, to show them, uh, you know, something I grew up with. But as you can see that uh, email I sent to my mom, I was making it and it wasn't coming out the same. I was like, what am I doing wrong here? So I just wrote her. I was like, you know, it's that. So that email is her <laughs> response. It sounds very tasty. Is it a um, one of your favorite foods? Uh, you know, it's it's a guilty pleasure. It's uh, <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing too fancy. Nothing too wonderful. But I just thought it, it's sort of a sentimental thing. And I and I thought my mom's the her recipe. <laughs> I used to uh, before her mother, my nana, my grandmother, when she was older. Uh, I I went to her and I said. Nana, I want to get, I, I want to get you to um, tell me a bunch of these recipes so I can write them down because we don't have them written down anywhere. And she had all things like her chicken soup and her kreplach, which are these sort of dumplings, Jewish dumplings, and all these wonderful things that she would make and stuffed cabbage and stuff like that. And so she would tell me the recipes, but the recipes were like, break an egg, fill half the egg with water and take three of those and take a, a pan and fill the pan till it's a, a half an inch, you know, like, well, how big of a pan? She was like, you know, a frying pan. So her recipes were completely, you know, <laughs> um, personal to, to the kitchen utensils that she had, <laughs> you know? So my mom's response was kind of similar to that. And it was like, you know, soak it for a minute under the water. And, you know, there was nothing terribly precise about it. It was very you know, an oral tradition <laughs> in more than one way, <laughs> two meanings. Made with a labor of love. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Creative Piecemeal, a creative arts podcast. And My we look pleasure. forward to hearing from you in the future. Can you tell us again the names of your string books so that uh, our listeners can look them up? Thank you. It's, um, it's called The Strumbowing Method. And you can find it at strumboing.com. And everything strumboing is up there. The new uh, courses will be up there. The new book when it comes out next year will be up there. 
and uh, strumboing.com. You can find me at tracysilverman.com. And I'm on all the socials. Please friend me and say hi. Excellent. Well, that will do us for today's episode. Thank you and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show? Have a question? Stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for a creative piecemeal podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.